Hi guys, it's John. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. Hope you found this. We had to switch to a new hosting website because the costs on the previous one were getting too high. And in the process, it sort of breaks the feed to iTunes. The new site has to be approved by iTunes and then create its new feed. And then people who were subscribers have to go back and resubscribe to the new feed. It's kind of annoying. Hopefully you all find us okay. All the old episodes are there. Nothing really changes except that you need to subscribe to the new site. And if you are listening to this, maybe you've already done that. All right, this week we are talking to Andy Del Castillo, who is the lead singer of a Canadian synth pop, synth prog band called Eight Seconds. They had one kind of minor hit in the U.S. called Kiss You When It's Dangerous, which is playing right now. That reached the high like number 72 in the American charts in 1987, I think it was. That was pretty much it for them in the States. I've always really liked them. I saw them in concert when I was 13 years old. It's always stuck with me. When I first had the germ of the idea for this podcast, probably four or five years ago, one of the things that really sparked my curiosity was I kind of Google searched him and found, I, I assumed it was him, turned out it was, a guy who owned a media company in Montreal on LinkedIn. And that was really the only evidence of him that I could find. And you had to have a premium LinkedIn account in order to even email him, which I didn't have and I wasn't gonna get just to stalk a rock star. But it's just sparked my imagination, like where could this guy be? I mean, that seems like a long ways from fronting a really cool rock band from the 80s. Anyway, we talk about that. He has not been in music for a long time, and frankly, he doesn't sound particularly nostalgic about it. He seems pretty clearly to have moved on. It's not really a part of his life anymore, and I don't think he really has any regrets or cares one way or the other. Seems pretty settled where he is right now. Uh, he called me from his home in Montreal. All right, well, Andy Del Castillo, I'm so grateful that you're joining me tonight for The Hustle. And I always kick these things off with a little bit of a story or an anecdote about how I discovered the person that I'm talking to. Yours is a very specific story, and I'll try and tell it quickly. It's a little bit long compared to others, but I'll try and tell this very quickly. So I am not quite 14 years old. I'm, I'm 13, and I live in Salt Lake City, Utah. And my family is really close to this older lady who lives in Norway. And she would come and visit us for long stretches about every year, every other year. We called her grandma, even though she wasn't actually our grandma. So she was in town staying with us, and she knew of another young Norwegian girl who was also staying in Salt Lake City around that time and wanted us to go out or meet or something, become friends. We talked on the phone, and we decided that we were going to go see Wang Chung in concert at what was then called Symphony Hall in downtown Salt Lake. The problem was I, she was 17 and I was 13, and so I had to fake my age, and I said I was 15 to kind of pass off a little bit. We got a ride to the concert. I still remember very much what I was wearing. This would have been 1987. I had khaki pants on, and I had this white, pink, and green plaid shirt under a bright green sweater, and I had my sleeves rolled up over the top of the sweater, you know what I mean? I was looking really good for 1987. We went to the concert. Come to find out this poor girl is 19 years old. 
so she's out on a out on a date essentially with a 13 year old boy. Yeah, that's a little weird. So anyway, we go to Wing Chun. We go for the opener, which I, and I hadn't heard of you, and I never go to shows now where I don't know who the opener is because I just don't want to stand around all that time. But I went anyway, and you guys killed it. And as soon as you started playing Kiss You When It's Dangerous, I recognized that song. And to this day, I, I mean, I was 13. I don't remember very much about it, except I have this visual of my head, in my head of you jumping up and down and clapping over your head to, like, you know, work the audience and stuff like that. You guys won me over that night, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I came away a bigger fan of you than Wang Chung. And, and I remember afterwards you guys were handing out these postcards. And I think it was you guys standing in front of Commissioner Street in a black and white photo. And I had that postcard. You know how you wedge pictures into your mirror, you know, around the <laughs> frame of your mirror? I had that postcard wedged into my mirror, like, throughout high school. And then about about 10 years ago, I'm in a mall in Muskegon, Michigan, and I see Alma Kantar, I assume that's how you say it, in a discount bin for $3.99, and I bought it. And I was on a road trip at the time, and so we listened to nothing but Alma Kantar for, like, hours on end on this road trip. It's still one of my all-time favorite 80s albums. I love, I mean, every track on there is killer. And then, just as a little side note, about a year ago, I found another copy in a thrift store here in Denver, and someone bought it off me on Amazon for forty bucks. Oh. So, yeah, so there you go. You're fetching a you're fetching top dollar these days on the <laughs> on the used Amazon site. So, anyway, that was a long way of telling you how you've been in my life for uh, boy, almost thirty years now, twenty eight years now. Yeah. Um, okay. First question, always wanted to ask, what in the world does Alma Kantar mean? Uh, boy, you know what? It, it's a um, good question. It, to, to be honest with you, um, it, it was never our first choice for an album name. We wanted to call the album uh, Good Circus, but one of the few times the label actually interfered with our work was, was that. And I guess somebody in marketing said, you know what, we're going to... We're not going to sell as many if we, they call this the Good Circus. So we had to find another name. And someone outside the band actually suggested uh, Alma Cantar to us. Uh, Alma Cantar, which they thought is, that was a catchier name than yeah, which is kind of strange. Oh, we just we always thought within the band we chuckled because it sounded like some sort of car dealer, right? Alma Cantar here, Dodge uh, Dodge cars. <laughs> but it's a navigational device, like a um, a non-electrical uh, navigational device used in the Middle Ages, um, and I think the word is actually originally Arabic, and, and it's like a sextant. So um, basically, you, you use this this object, this uh, you use an alvocanter to um, um, you know m m measure the movement of the stars. I'm assuming to to guide you. Really? Yeah. So you know, wow. from a metaphorical um, sure uh, perspective, it, you know, it fit nicely, right? It was just yeah, uh, yeah. It, it was a nice fit for the for the uh, for the album and, and some of the songs. Uh, uh -huh. But again, it, it wasn't our first choice. So. Okay. Interesting. Now. Boy, if you had the luxury of explaining that every time somebody picked up your album in a music land and thought, oh, I wonder if I'm going to like this, that would have been great. That's pretty obscure. Um, that's, a really, that's a pretty heady name, too. And I, you guys, I read a description of you guys recently. Well, this is actually a while back, actually. But it's, I think they called you a synth prog band. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's kind of a little bit true. I mean... Your stuff is, there's nothing straightforward about 
eight seconds music, you know? There's a lot going on there, interesting time signatures and going in different directions. Do you view yourself that way, or do you... Did you think you were just making pop music, or were you trying to make intelligent pop music? What were you kind of thinking you were doing at the time? You know what? That I'd have to say that uh, that moniker was probably the most accurate we we had. I mean, we had, we had a lot of synth pop, which kind of drove us yeah. crazy. I mean, yeah. we grew up um, the core of the band, which is myself, um, Frank, and Scott, the drummer. Uh, sorry, the keyboard player and drummer, respectively. We grew up listening to to um, to a lot of. Uh, of, of progressive rock in the seventies. Uh, I had an older brother, so I, through, through, the, through my older brother, I got to learn about Jethro Tull. I got to learn about oh, yeah. the early Genesis, like Peter Gabriel Genesis. In fact, yeah. you know, that, that really was my favorite band. played in a few bands before eight seconds where we, we i played in an, an actual genesis cover band and and we, we weren't doing abacab or follow me follow you we were doing some pretty some pretty heavy genesis stuff with different time signatures and uh, yeah and uh you know modulations and uh, uh-huh. uh different themes and you know uh so so when when I joined Frank and Scott, they, they you know they were huge Rush fans. <laughs> so you know, wow. which is I guess conceivably the ultimate progressive rock. Okay. Band. Okay. Now, now having said that, and, and again going back to that sort of moniker, uh, you know, we, we we definitely wanted to to write progressive music. But but having said that, we were also not a guitar band. One of the, the reasons why we never sort of really hit it off. Uh, got a Canadian label first because at that mm. point, you know, the, the Canadian uh, you know the Canadian labels were looking for a typical Canadian band that that you know that would sell, and that's you're looking at you know either a Brian Adams or a Loverboy or that kind of thing, right? Little yeah, little yeah. sort of head, more heavy oriented. So I think when we sent out demos and people heard a lot of sense, they, they you know the, the Canadian labels went, mm, "We're not really sure about this band." Yeah. But yeah. you know we um, we kind of struck gold with uh, Rupert Hine getting interested and. Uh, yeah, and then Polygram picking us up as as a result of that. From a musical perspective, you know, I, I, we we definitely want we we weren't a pop band. It just happened to be we you know we hit on a on on a record, a single, "Kiss You" that that was very very radio friendly, um, and and that kind of got the ball rolling. Yeah, so, yeah. But definitely, we we uh, we aspired to to bigger, greater, more progressive uh, music. Yeah, because your second album, it's pretty out there. I mean, out there compared to the first. It doesn't sound as if you guys were considering a lot of radio airplay at the time. It was kind of more, we're going to follow our muse down this other trail. Am I wrong about that? No, that's that's absolutely true. That's very fair. Once uh, Al McCanter was released, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we looked at ourselves, to be honest with you, you know, like, you know, we, all of a sudden we realized, you know, we were really being marketed as a pop band, as a as a, as a late Duran Duran, as opposed to uh, something cooler, you know, like a 
and the Pesh Motor, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we we were progressive rock fans, but at the same time, you know, we we um, we definitely enjoyed early eighty bands like Simple Minds, like early Simple Minds. Ah, uh, yeah, they're one of my favorite. Which, favorite. But it, and it, it was, you know, for the longest time, Simple Minds is definitely not radio friendly, but, but they wrote some great songs, right? Yep. So with, with Big Houses, which is the second album, and I, I should mention, actually, just as a, as a little side note, that their record label and our publisher that came to agreement and, and uh, Big Houses will be on iTunes probably in the next really? weeks, which is kind of exciting, yeah. Oh, finally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But definitely with, with Big Houses, we wanted to voice, a, um, you know, present a different uh, musical uh, yeah, uh, okay. uh, direction. I want to talk more about Big Houses in a bit, because there's some drama behind the release of that album and sitting on shelves and stuff like that. But yeah. when Alma Kantar comes out, how are you feeling? I mean, you're this, you're this band, this Canadian band that's starting to make some waves up north, and then your, your debut album comes out, I mean, it wasn't a huge hit that you were getting airplay. You were opening for Wang Chung around the country, the States anyway. Were you feeling like you had made it? One day, you maybe you have a regular job, and the next day you quit that job to become a full-time rock star. Was there a moment like that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, I yeah. can pinpoint the moment, not just for me, but for the guys, the rest of the guys in the band. Is You know, we we'd had we had management, and we, were, uh, we had a... a, a an EP, if you remember those, like extended mm-hmm. play, uh, you know, we, we released one of those and, and it was getting radio play locally and also in Toronto, which was one of the bigger cities in mm-hmm. Canada. There was, you know, definitely a progression there we were kind of happy about and, and we were developing a name as a good live band. Uh, we were doing a lot of shows, which we loved, but then we get a call from Rupert Hine and, and I'd say that's the moment all of a sudden we realized, you know, shit, things just got really serious. Yeah, um, yeah, you know, well-known producer uh, produced the Fix, one of our favorite bands as well. That's, but you know, he, and, and, he, I mean, he you probably them. get this a lot. You guys sound a lot like the Fix.
Well, definitely on on uh, Amacanta for sure. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same sure. studio, same producer. All of a sudden, we're talking about a producer that uh, you know made massive records and, and was very well respected. And where once you know we, we we couldn't land a Canadian record deal, all of a sudden with Rupert Hine in in the equation, all of a sudden you know we were getting hunted down by uh, American labels, U.S. labels, right, out of New York. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you, the U.S. discovered us. I like to think that they wouldn't have signed us if Rupert Hines said, "Listen to these guys." And, 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 yeah. And and yeah. and when we weren't any good, you know. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you know, right. there, there was something in the music as well. We knew because yeah. you know, "Kiss You" was was you know back then. All of a sudden, the single was the thing, right? And mm-hmm. and everybody realized this this was single material, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So that moment for us was, uh, it was, a, you know, euphoria and euphoric, you know, it was yeah, yeah, all of a sudden, totally. okay, this is all of a sudden big. This is all of a sudden yeah. big, you know? Yeah. yeah. You probably had been hearing yourself on the radio a little bit locally, but was there a moment when maybe you heard Kiss You on the radio in the States or, you know, did you have a kind of an experience like that where you realized this is, you know, getting bigger and bigger? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, I think once, well, there's three times, I guess. Once, the first time I heard the song on the radio here in Ottawa, it was an absolute thrill. We didn't have a record deal then or anything like that, but, you know, it, it's, to be honest with you, you know, it's still exciting, right? I mean, I hear sure. I, sometimes, you yeah. know, on the old, um, you know, um, uh, you know, in the 80s and 90s stations, you know, every so often the, the song will come on, and I'll know it will come on because somebody will call me, right? And yeah. Call me, right? A buddy of mine will call me, right? But, uh you know, hearing it here in Ottawa, and then once in Toronto, I was in Toronto, I heard the song, it was, you know, kind of neat, and then, uh, you know, when we started the tour with Wang Chung, we flew, flew out to LA, where the tour started uh, at the Irvine uh, campus of uh, UC, and on on the cab ride over to meet our agency, uh, sure enough, the song came on, and it was like, wow, you know, it was, uh, it, it was trippy, totally trippy. Wow, that's the moment, right? Yeah. And what were some of the bigger, do you remember some of the big moments, bigger shows that you were playing at the time? Any kind of like uh, exciting shows stand out? Yeah, sure. One of the funnest shows we had, to be honest, it was uh, was uh, in, in in Provo in, uh, in Utah. We, we did a lot of shows with Wang Chung, but in areas where the album sold well, we did our own shows. And Utah was... Uh, one of uh, one of those places. I, I think in, in Salt Lake City, the album sold very well, and uh, and then I guess uh, Provo being home to um, bring me on. Um, we uh, yeah. we did a we did a show there on our own. We did a show in our no by ourselves in in Detroit by virtue of being close to Windsor. So we had a lot of Canadian fans wow. coming over the bridge. There were a couple other spots as well. You know what? One of the most uh, one of one of the funnest shows we did was here in Ottawa, in fact, uh, where we uh, we backed up uh, Paul Young. And that was kind of a cool show too, because uh, uh, the record the record label that was within days of Rupert Hine calling us. We had a show while well, Paul Young was in. Uh, the uh, promoter who we knew got us on that bill, so we opened up for Paul sure. Young and wow. uh, and Paul Graham. He was big at the time. That was every was, yeah. time you go away, right? That's right.
Actually, that yeah. was, you know, interestingly enough, that was written by Hall and Oates. Oh, I know. Yeah, I'm a huge yeah. Hall and Oates fan. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But that, so, was, um, that would have been the song that was big that he was kind of pushing at the time, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. We did that show uh, with um, Polygram uh, reps coming up to see it. And so mm. it was it was a showcase for us, right? And uh, it, it, we, you know, we, we hit the proverbial home run of that show. I mean, we had a home crowd, right? But it was just... Uh, it, was, it was a great show, and uh, we worked our butts off, and uh, and we nice. got a great response. And coming off stage, we realized, okay, that was it. That's what we needed to do. You know, so yeah, like, yeah, that's great. And I was reading you. You also opened for Bowie. Is that right? Yeah, we did. Did well, you actually, meet him? We actually opened up for Duran Duran, who was opening up for David Bowie. So we were all on the same stage here in Ottawa. And uh, no, we I I would have Not man I would have done anything to meet him, but uh, he he came in in a helicopter, and he as soon as his uh, encore was done, he left on a helicopter. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, that was the um, no Spider, spider from Mars. Tour. Spider that from was Mars. Ziggy, that was Ziggy. That was the early seventies. The Glass Spider tour was for his Never Let Me Down album, which came out around the same time. I think. I mean, if I have my if I have my facts right. I'm a huge Bowie fan too, so I'm kind of yeah yeah. I get kind of nerdy about that. Back in the day, I mean, were there moments when you were kind of meeting heroes or, you know, rubbing shoulders, getting respect from people you you respected in return? I would say, yeah, we, we, we met some, some, well, when we were recording Big Houses in, in Morin Heights, which is a studio outside of Montreal, our, our producer, uh, co-producer for that album was a guy called Paul Northfield. And he had engineered, he was engineering on, on quite a few, um, uh, Rush albums. While we were there, we were there in '88. I think we were there like uh, two months, uh, March and April. When we were there, Rush was playing in Montreal, so so he got us tickets. We went down and we went backstage afterwards and, and met the guys in Rush. And I was like, whoa, that was that was very heady. I mean, great guys, really, yeah, like amazing. super super nice guys, like totally yeah. humble guys, you know, like the uh, you know anti rock stars, you know, they were just mm-hmm. uh, really down to earth and. We went backstage, and who were back? You know, it was like their friends and, and their family were backstage, right? So, nice. so that was that was very cool. We got a chance to do that. We 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 actually met Paul Young, which was uh-huh. we loved. We thought it was very cool. Frank went out when we were in, in London. Frank went out with uh, Rupert Hines to a music store in uh, in London, and uh, that morning I remember Frank uh, uh, and Rupert said, "Well, why don't you come with us, right?" And they were going to look at some keyboards. They were going to go, go to a music shop. And I said, you know what? I'm going to hang around because I was finishing some lyrics up. And uh, they came back about four hours later. And Frank's like, you know, this look at, uh, in his eye. And he's all red faced. And he told me, you, you're never going to believe who we had lunch with, right? And I said, no, who? And he goes, Peter Gabriel. What? <laughs> no. I'm like, fuck. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But, uh, That's okay. I, I just couldn't believe it. You know, it's just like oh. my hero, you know? And, uh, but anyway. Yeah. That that was that was one I missed, but um, oh, you know, man. but uh, at the same time it was uh, met a lot of very very interesting people. Sure. Would you so then? Would you say? I mean, is Peter Gabriel probably one of your number one musical heroes, as it were? Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I you know you grow up most most pop singers, rock singers, they don't they don't grow up taking voice lessons, right? They just like I'm sure like I did, you know, just lock myself in the room and just sing mm-hmm. along to. Uh, to uh, you know your 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 favorite music, and uh, yeah, I spend hours upon hours, uh, you know, days worth of hours uh, um, yeah. listening to uh, singing along the Genesis stuff, right, and with Peter Gabriel. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Interesting. 
Okay, so Almacantar has run its course, and it's I don't I don't know exactly. Do you? I think it, I read somewhere it sold about fifty five thousand copies. Is that right? To be honest with you, I'm not really sure. I think over overall, uh, probably around that much. Yeah, I think it was like okay. something like a close to forty in Canada, and then uh, I don't know. I don't know how it sold in the states. Okay. Okay. Um, I, I imagine it did well. I mean, it made several charts. So. Yeah. Okay. So what then happened with the second album? Why was there not more, you know, fire, more juice behind it? Not that you guys did anything. You made a great album, but it sounded like there wasn't the support there to put it out. Yeah, unfortunately, there wasn't. Our, our AR guy, who you know, who actually we we uh, we loved and respected, it was a guy called AR, AR being the uh, artist repertoire. They they represent the, the the artists within the label. He this is a guy called the Derek Schulman, who used to be the uh, lead singer of a very progressive rock band called uh, uh, Gentle Giant. I guess he, he must have noticed we were trying to do you know, sort of something with, uh, with the music as well, something a little more sort of uh, complicated. So he was the one that kind of signed us on the Polygram. And he was our rep. After we released and toured Almacantar, he went on uh, to start his own label, Atco. And uh, we all of a sudden were left without representation within the record company, which is, uh, which is a killer, an absolute killer. Yeah. Right? You, need to, you yeah. need to have somebody in there vouching for you. And at the same time, you know, we didn't help ourselves because uh, we got into a, a dispute with uh, our, our management. You know, basically, we just we couldn't work with each other anymore. So that that delay, on top of the fact that within Polygram, we didn't have uh, uh, you know that sort of internal support, yeah, uh, yeah, put a big delay on 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 the second album, uh, which we recorded in '88. So two years went by, effectively yeah. speaking, without the album being released. You know, I didn't even know that album existed until a few years ago. But around yeah, the same yeah. time I found you on LinkedIn, maybe five years ago with that. Was it physically released in the States? Was there even a moment when I could have gone to a record store and bought it? Quite honestly, I don't think so. It was released huh? uh, domestically in Canada, but and, and that was in, in 1990. It, it wasn't released until we got picked up by Warner in Canada, Warner decided yeah. to pick up the album, and this is after two years of, of, of the, the album sort of sitting on the shelf. Predictably, hindsight being 2020, predictably, we had lost you know, a lot of the momentum that we had gained uh, through touring in the States so with uh, Wang Chung and doing our own shows uh, and touring throughout Canada. You know, all of a sudden, you know, that momentum was gone. So 
and, and, and to be quite frank, you know, music had changed considerably, right? Yeah, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, all of a sudden, sort of the, the, the glamour of the, uh, the 80s and, and the look and, and, the, and the musical sound wasn't relevant anymore, you know, and all of a sudden you had that sort of Seattle sound coming along, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the grunge, which, you know, it's just, and that's the way it is, right? Pop, pop yeah. kind of eats itself, right? Yeah, it needs to change, and uh, uh-huh. at the, all of a sudden our sound wasn't uh, that relevant. But to be honest with you, I, I always thought that Big Houses wasn't relevant at that time either, you know? Uh, I thought it was really? more of a 70s, 70s album, to be honest with you. It was, it was kind of progressive, and uh, yeah. so it was either, you know, like a decade to uh, two later, you know, maybe two or three decades too early. Who knows? We'll have to see when it gets uh, back on iTunes. <laughs> really? So were you feeling kind of conf- uh, conflicted as you were making it? When you say that, are you saying it wasn't, you know, fitting your vision? Are you saying you're not loving it that much? Or are you saying you like it, but you think it's probably too over the top for other normal people? What What do you mean by that? Big houses, actually, yeah, we absolutely loved. We absolutely loved the music. Oh, good. Was on. Okay. What we felt, though, and what I felt, I, I, I can't really say it speaks to the rest of the band members. What I felt was, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, this is not what's on the radio these days, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And this is back in even in '88, right? This is before the two-year yeah. layoff. I just yeah. felt, you know, this is this is a little out there. Like people are not writing this kind of stuff, right? Because right. we were writing something of a a concept album, you know. Was it? You it was of, a concept album. Oh, definitely, definitely. Okay. There, okay. There, there was there was a definite theme to the album. A couple of uh, well, several musical themes and a couple of uh, literary themes that uh, that mm. were strung throughout the the, the album. Mm. We we're fiercely proud of it, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, this this is really not what's on uh, on the radio these days. We we felt maybe that one of the tunes called "Tell Diane" maybe had a shot at radio. Yeah. But at, but at the time, um, you know, again, you know, I'll credit the record company. They never interfered with it. So, uh, 
So that wasn't, uh, you know. So they let you make the album you wanted. They just didn't end up promoting it. Yeah, I mean, it got to a point. Well, you know what? Uh, Having said that, Warner did try to put it out there. Warner Canada. Um, okay. But um, but you know what? It's it, it was just a different time in radio, and that and that two year layoff I think uh, hurt us. So yeah. uh, it was you know without that momentum, um, uh, you know, the, no no song on big houses had the uh, the radio friendliness of uh, Kiss You, yeah. right? So yeah. uh, so it was like starting over again. Um, uh, so it got a little bit of action, but certainly not uh, not as much as uh, on yeah. Page. How were you feeling at the time? I mean you're a young guy and you're, you have rock and roll dreams, you know, you're the front man of, and you know, you're a good looking guy. You got that longer bleached hair and you're looking good. And and it's like, these people are kind of thwarting my progress here. Right. I have dreams that I want to fulfill and um, this isn't happening. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, it's, uh, uh, I, I, it's hard for me to sort of get in touch with what I was feeling, but I'm, I'm sure I was quite disappointed that, you know, we can get it off the ground. It's like anybody yeah. else, right? You try to get something off the ground and it's just not uh, getting any traction. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it was, uh, it was, you know, as, as much as being a pop star was kind of, a, you know, a rock star and a touring rock star, I, I you know, and I say, I say, I use the word star very uh, generously because, you know, yeah. it wasn't like that at all. We were certainly no Billy Idol, but um, sure. it was, um, I'd have to say that you know it it, it wasn't my end all be all right. It wasn't really? I, you know I I knew if, if if that thing didn't work out I'd I'd try something different. I you know I'd I'd, I'd try to make a living in some other uh, some other fashion. Huh. But certainly the uh, you know the, the but certainly it was it was painful to know that uh, you know that something that uh, that you worked at uh, hard yeah. and long and you put your you know yourself into it and, and I'm talking sure. about uh, big houses. Was was just not, uh, um, you know, was not uh, connecting. Yeah, yeah. So was the oh man. So you were you. I mean, I'm sure. Well, I'll just ask you. So tell me what that. Do you remember the moment when you it 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 hit you that you had you were not going to be able to live as a rock star slash musician anymore, and you needed to do something different. Um, I think that was, you know what, it was an evolution uh, over maybe a space of a year, year and a half or so. Um, okay. You know, I tried a couple of other sort of different musical things uh, after the band kind of unofficially split up. We just, you know, we just all of a sudden stopped and stopped practicing, right? We we were told the record company wasn't going to option or, uh, uh, you know, a third album. Um, but we, you know, so we tried a couple of different things and... Um, uh, over time, I just realized, you know what? I mean, I, I, I think I can still compose pretty well. So uh, I, I, I took, you know, I, I started writing theme songs for different events and that kind of thing. And, and you know, really? around that time, this in the early '90s, for example, um, you, you guys have the uh, the, call, the um, Avalanche, right? Colorado Avalanche. Yeah, the yeah, the hockey team. So yeah, we, sure. we, yeah, we have the Ottawa Senators. So, yeah. um, you know, during the auto senators came to life in 1992 and um, I thought, you know what, let's all write a theme song for the team.
So, uh, so you just sit in your house and decide to write a theme song and then drive over to where the Senators play and say, I got your theme song right here? Or how does that, did someone commission you to do that? How does that effectively, happen? Effectively speaking, you just described it. It was no commission. I had that, that sort of much confidence that I figured, you know, I'll, wow. I'll write a tune and it'll be good and they'll love it, right? And, Great. And, and so I, I co-wrote a tune actually with March, our bass player. I pitched it unsolicited to the team and uh, got a call the next day. This is great. Come on in. Wow. Uh, so we did. And, you know, we worked at it sort of a little bit back and forth. And uh, and it's been the theme song uh, ever since. So I did a couple oh, things right. like that, something for United Nations, something for uh, 50th anniversary of, of yeah, the UN, and then something for D-Day. I wrote an uh, anniversary of D-Day. So I was writing mm. m- music for, for events, basically. Wow. And, and that sort of led me into uh, video production. Yeah. Okay. Let's put a pin in video production because that's obviously the second chapter of this part of your life. But one of the things that we talk about in this podcast is money. Because I talk a lot to sort of more fringe artists, I hope that doesn't bother you, but just artists who, you know what I'm saying, who weren't like selling millions of albums, money is an issue, right? Because laymen like me, we just see, we just hear our favorite songs on the radio and we dream of of rock stars and assume everyone's set for life, but that's not true. Well, let me ask you this. So do you get some kind of a, a royalty for the theme song of the Senators and the other things that you do? I mean, you get paid for that, I assume, right? Do you get paid in like perpetuity or is it a one-time thing? Um, no, one-time thing. Um, they, well, the Senators are a different situation because they um, every so often they refresh the song, so we re-record it um, just to make it a little more sort of contemporary sounding. Uh, you know, I, 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 we, we started, I did, I did some writing for for TV shows as well. Not famous, famous ones by any means. And then, you know, not mm-hmm. write the mash theme. I would have loved to write the mash theme, but okay. kids' TV shows. So okay. royalties come in from that. Uh, I still get royalties from eight seconds stuff. Um, it's, huh. uh, you know, thankfully, uh, kiss you kind of. M- most songs that that don't, you know, become like classics fade into the sunlight, right? So they have a, yeah, what the, yeah. what the uh, uh, publishers call a, a sunset period, right? They, you know, like it was like, you know, three years, but, you know, they, they uh, you know, they stop getting played on the radio. Yeah, they're kind of fading um, right? Kiss You is kind of neat that way, is it? In that it kind of lives in, uh, in, in 80s and 90s stations. So yeah. I, I get, uh, um, I, I get some royalty checks from that. Now, having said that, you know, like royalty, you know, I certainly can't live on that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. I would, I would definitely be living on the street if I depended only on that. So okay. I knew right, okay. I knew right away that I'd have to do uh, something, uh, something different. Great. Okay, that's exact. You answered it exactly right. So you do still. Now, see, that's interesting to me because I don't think, and maybe it's because you're Canadian. I don't think I've heard "Kiss You" on the radio since it came out. You know, but it must still have a little bit of a life up there, right? Yeah, it does here definitely, and and. Uh, the way the way music is distributed, the way money and royalties are distributed, um, you know, every country has its own uh, uh, royalty um, uh, collector, right? And so, in, in Canada, we we have a, an organization called SoCan. In the states, you have uh, uh, IRAP and is it IRAP? I can't remember now. Uh, but there's there's uh, there's two two organizations uh, that collect um, royalties from from radio and, and different sources right that perform music mm-hmm. and um so and they show up they, they you know they're uh, uh line itemized um on on royalty statements so mm-hmm. so it does get played in the states which is kind of nice i can tell yeah. right it all depends yeah. you know but, but it's not a, it's not a very uh, it's a very imperfect uh, 
method. You know, they just basically uh, screen certain stations in the States, and if your song happens to be uh, playing on, on that station that's being, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, screened, then, hey, yeah, you, know, you yeah. get royalties. So so right. it does get okay. played, definitely in Canada. Sure. Um, so, you know, like I said, it's, sure. uh, it, it's, it's nice to have a little uh, side thing coming in. Sure. Oh, that's great. I'm, well, and, I mean, I'm just happy for you that, you know, the legend lives on. I, I love that first album so much. And, oh, um, yeah, and I would just hate to think that it would just be forgotten somewhere, you know? So that's great. Were there other singles? Was, was Where's Beulah a single as well, at least in Canada? No, it wasn't. There was just two singles released off of that album, which were was uh, were "Kiss You" and "Sincere." But it's funny that you mentioned "Where's Vila" because that was a massive stepping stone in in, in our uh, in our career. That was the first song we ever wrote together, actually. Um, that, I knew there was a story there. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's it. And uh, in fact, that song we entered that song in a the Cherche contest. It was, uh, uh-huh. which was a, a, a music contest put on by this uh, the radio station here in Ottawa called Shea 106. Mm-hmm. You know, we we recorded it, we entered it, and and it won, and uh, that was for us kind of a, a validation of sorts. It was like, okay, sure. well, maybe maybe we can do this. Maybe we can we can actually make it work, right? So it was a, a very yeah. early success that kind of gave us the confidence and the uh, and the encouragement. You know, we needed to to continue on. Sure. Wow. Okay. What I mean is Beulah a person? You have some of the strangest song names ever, by the way. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, where, what's Beulah? Uh, you know, actually, and and yeah, you're probably right. I do get that a lot. I when I when I um, when I quit school to go full time band member, I, I I love reading. I, I read all the time, uh, and so you know when I quit. School, when I quit school, basically to go on the road, you know, the, the guilt factor got me reading everything I could get my hands mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think, to be honest with you, I mean, it's just, it's you know, it's definitely a metaphor as well. Beulah's in, in the Bible is a land of milk and honey, but then the lyrics are more or less based on uh, Siddhartha, was a which is a a book written uh, 
uh, by a German author whose name friggin' escapes me now. I'm sorry. About I've that. heard of the book, but I've never read. Yeah, it, yeah. it was a famous. It was a famous book. I I, I read that. Okay. And, yeah. So it was basically someone trying to find paradise, but not a physical paradise, kind of a mental paradise, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So um, so that that was kind of what I based uh, the lyrics on. Bila was a uh, just kind of a name I came up with. It sounded huh. kind of funny. Boy, I, like I said, heady stuff. I mean, I'm realizing that they're so intellectual for a pop group. I wonder if that was intentional. But you're confirming everything that I'm saying, that there was just so much more, you know, academically and intellectually going on behind the scenes. My very favorite song is Zoe. Play and I have Zoe on repeat for like a day. You know what I oh, mean? Nice. Without getting yeah. talk, sick of it. I that's love great. it so much. Now, and here's another one though. Like, is well, Zoe I should, a person? I should, I, I, yes, I was just about to say. In fact, Zoe is a person. Zoe is uh, my uh, godchild and my goddaughter. I guess it's called okay. and uh, Frank's daughter. So when she was born, uh, we oh. penned a little. We penned a little piece for. Her. So actually, okay. the song is uh, is is about what would have been maybe a three- or four-month-old uh, baby girl. Okay. Okay, I've, I, again, because it had different spelling, right? I mean, it's Z-O-E, which is, nowadays you see it more Z-O, Z-O-W-I-E, like Bowie, so I didn't know if that was a name or if that was, yeah. like, who are these people? Zoe, Beulah? What kind of women are you running around with, you know? <laughs> I don't know anybody named these with these names spelled like this. No, I, I remember. I, I do remember reading a review saying that uh, these guys really like proper names. Yeah. Big, big houses as well. Because the big houses had, uh, you know, no Picasso. No Picasso. No Picasso.
I know. Joy and tell Diane. And, yeah. I don't know. I, don't know. I was going to ask you the same thing about that stuff. It just gets weirder and weirder. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, man. Okay, good. Well, so, okay, I'm going to ask you a personal question. You can answer it if you want or not. If you are, if it bothers you, we'll cut it out or whatever. But I mean, actually, but before you ask, let me let me just tell you that it's, so I don't forget that the, 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 when we were talking about Where's Beulah, it was a book called Siddhartha, and it was Herman Hess that wrote it. That's I, had it. Okay. My, I had to, I had to go over my book collection to check it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one. Okay, good. Yeah, I'd heard of the book, but I couldn't remember who read it or who wrote it. You guys are all good-looking dudes. This is the '80s. The back of the uh, Alma Kantar album, you, you're all just dressed to the nines, looking so preppy and sweet back there. Uh, you were you married at the time? Were you single? Were you? You don't have to give me specifics, but I mean, were you loving being a rock star there for a couple of years? All single, actually. I suppose you're talking about the perks, right? Um, yeah, sure. You know, definitely there were there. I, I would I would hardly think uh, I would hardly say we were uh, the most uh, active on that front. Um, okay. You know, we were okay. Pretty careful, you know. There and and we had to be by by virtue of the health scares that that came sure. along with it in the early eighties, right? Yeah. So, uh, the AIDS. Exactly. Exactly. So we I yeah. you know we, we were pretty careful with uh, with what we did, and we, you know we had terrific tans. So we 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 absolutely sure. did. But and the, but the important thing to remember is that you know. If um, you know somebody was, you know, very quick to offer themselves, you know, they were obviously doing it with other people as well, right? Sure, and, sure. And okay. and, and, we, and again with that sort of the, the environment uh, that was going on back then, that wasn't the, the safest. Thing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, were you a pinup? I don't even know. Were you featured in like those teen magazines? Did girls have posters of Andy Del Castillo on their wall in Canada? Did it go um, that far, or were you a little too under the radar for that? I think. Well, we had a we had a fan base, and of course, and you know, it's typical the fan base sure. is mostly you know, mostly women. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But you know, but legitimately, you know, they were fans of of the music and they knew the music and they loved the music. But, but I, I I honestly don't think so. I certainly that's some, certainly something we weren't we didn't uh, aspire to. Okay. Okay. Well, I wanted to ask. Okay. Good. So now you tell me about your transition out of out of music. You're writing, you go about writing songs, uh, we won't call them jingles, but sort of like theme songs or whatever to various yeah. events. I don't know how long that goes on, but is that how you make a living? How do you start making a living paying your bills when you leave music? Well, good question. It, it, it was basically a transition. We were, you know, I, I was writing theme songs and, and getting paycheck basically, not every two weeks, but whenever I wrote, wrote something. Mm-hmm. That lasted for quite a few years, actually. And really, I was able to hold my own, save up. Uh, what I did was actually, which was a kind of a bigger project. I put together a music library, like a stock music library, for um, a company called Corel. And Corel was the company that uh, uh, developed Corel Draw. I don't know if you remember that. It was back again, back in the '80s and '90s. But it was one know. of the first uh, illustrating uh, softwares. Right. Okay. Okay. It became very, very popular. I pitched them on a on a, on a music library, and it was a very large project. But, you know, that that was quite uh, good for for me, and good for me actually because I'm I, at that point in time I had just met my wife, so that got going. And then out of that, I, I ended up getting a job at a video company, working for their audio department, wow. and uh, you know, writing music and, and also doing some selling. And 
Okay. By, you know, through that, I started working on video, you know, music for videos, right? Like, and, and, and when I say videos, I don't mean like music videos. I mean like sure. corporate, corporate videos. Yeah, corporate videos, right. Yeah, and, and Ottawa being a, a government town, um, at that point in time, there was a, a great uh, need for, for corporate videos because governments wanted to, you know, uh, use that as, as a communications medium, right? Uh-huh. Use video, so so that was uh, that was good, and then and then, and then I thought to myself, well, I can probably do this on my own. So I started my own company in this 2004, and uh, been going at it ever since. In your business for yourself, which I basically have been, with the exception of that little stint where I worked at a record, uh, where sorry, where I worked at a video company. There was lots of up and downs, but yeah. um, you just kind of make it work. Wow. So here you had this company, R and D Designs, right, or R and D Creative. That's right. Okay. And you basically do corporate video, corporate media, right? That's Whatever right. that yeah. might be. Okay. Yeah, and animation, um, uh, you know, 2D, 3D animation or, or videos for, say, for a Department of uh, Environment here in Canada. Um, you okay. know, they need a video explaining why uh, the Canadian government is investing in windmills, you know, or, or, mm-hmm. or something, or, or developing um, uh, right. uh, some nuclear power at a certain uh, dam, right? They need a video yep. to explain it, right? So yep. they, they call on us to go and produce that. So they call on several companies, and we bid on it. Okay. And that's been going on. This company has existed since 2004. It's your company, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Pays the bills. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I that's what I was going to say. Okay, so it's it's it, it must be going well enough that you've been at it for 11 years now and it sustains you and your family and is this how you ride off into the sunset? Do you continue in this company for That's know, a, that's, that's a really good question, you know. It's and, and it's funny because maybe one of the things that has lasted with me that I've kept from from being in the band in eight seconds is perhaps something of a suspended adolescence because I don't see myself as a 50-year-old person anymore, right? right I don't right. really see I, I see myself right. as still, you know, and, and thankfully I feel that way as well, right? So I, I, so I don't give that a lot of thought, right? Um, yeah. I don't give, you know, like retirement a lot of thought or, you know, the fact that I am sort of, you know, getting on the horse is going to ride me into the sunset to, to yeah. continue your, your, your analogy. But I, I, I see it that way. I mean, unless... Okay. You know, it'd be wonderful. I mean, to be honest with you, you but I certainly wouldn't count on it. Is uh, you know, if I could, uh, you know, sell the company and then and then keep just writing music, that'd be kind of fun. Yeah. But but um, that would you know require a certain a certain amount sure. of a start again type thing, which would be yeah. uh, would take a while. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy just uh, you know playing acoustic guitar or piano in the house. Okay, because that that was going to be my next question. Do you find yourself writing music occasionally or feeling the impulse to write music and then and th- and then conversely and this is a question that I don't know if people think about when you feel that impulse because you must to some degree it must come naturally for you in some ways do you ever feel sort of trapped that there may not be an outlet other than you just strumming the guitar in your house by yourself do you ever feel trapped like you have a message or a um an emotion or something you want to share with people and not and you're you don't really have an avenue anymore to get it out there. Am I overthinking this? Do you ever feel no, no, are you ever bogged a, down by those a, feelings? That's a great question because I'm sure uh, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, artists um, you know in, in my position that probably feel that way. I can't say I feel that strongly about it. I'll tell you why. Okay. Because for one, I, I I'm still in, in in something of a creative field, and even though I own the company, yeah. 
you know, and, and most of the time I have uh, very talented people that, uh, you know, that work for me that come up with great creative ideas. I, I do sort of pitch in every so often um, when mm-hmm. something comes along, which is rewarding in that sense. And then, mm-hmm. but as well, I, um, although we haven't done a lot, a lot of gigs because I just had a knee replacement, I, I, I do play with that corporate band too. And it's, it's a great band. It's an 11 piece band. And like, so there's a, a horn section. We don't do original music, but we do a lot of great covers in in, in our own way, um, and and being, that definitely satisfies the whole being okay. on stage and being able to sing. Yeah, that's that's, that's a very very uh, gratifying, uh, uh, cathartic um, exercise for me. Yeah, good. Okay, and then I don't. I mean, I think I saw, there's some videos on YouTube of of eight seconds, you know, reunion show. How often does that happen? Oh Lord, that thing—it it doesn't happen. That was, in fact, okay. it was incomplete. Uh, that's probably the one uh, where we just do "Kiss You," uh, and that's like, yeah. uh, you know, you know. Quite frankly, we're all uh, three sheets to the wind on that one. <laughs> uh, it was Scott's fiftieth birthday, the drummer. Okay. And uh, so he uh, he had this little sort of get together. It was very unofficial. There was only about maybe like you know. 60 or 70 friends in the crowd mm, and okay. uh, and like i said most of the you know it was it was kind of a fun get together let's have some drinks and yeah oh, crap crap what i got a guitar in my hand what am i doing yeah <laughs> at night so uh but yeah, so are no, there we, never we, offers to reunite to play like a a canadian rewind festival or something like that yeah we've you know for the most part we've anything that comes up like that we usually say no that's uh oh, it, it, it was a it had its time it was a lot of fun but uh yeah there's okay. a, it's it's a young man's game, John. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, it you know, so many people would just give anything to still be in the game, still, you know, no matter the age. And yeah, if you've had and, that, and if you've tasted it, you kind of want to go back to it. But it sounds like you've got closure on the whole thing. You know, I have. I mean, it's but but it's it's kind of a it's a good closure though. I mean, I look back on it with great fondness, right? And and I have tremendous amount of respect to people that are still going at it, like they you know they've been up and they've been down. I have tremendous respect because that's, you know, talk about a never quit attitude, you know, that's, that's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. For me, it was just, you know, like I've been there, done that. Let's, uh, okay, let's do something, okay. you know, let's do something different with life. And it's not, well, it's I mean, not the kind, and I'm very happy with, you know, I, I have two sure. uh, uh, teenage kids. Um, and uh, for me, I, I, every time I look back at it, it's like, you know, if, if I had kept going and try to make something, you know, would, would I still have two kids? Probably not. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. Not that you can't well, do it without kids, help. but. Right, right. But you have the stable family life that you have now, because, probably because you're not pursuing rock stardom anymore, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. And it has to have helped that your company is successful. I mean, if it weren't, or you were somebody still trying to kind of find your way, maybe that the lure of, you know, rock music or musical career or whatever may be a little more powerful, but you've managed to, tra- managed to transition very successfully and leave a lot of that stuff behind. Okay, so here's a question for you that I want to know. How often do you think about eight seconds? You know? Yeah. Is it something that you think about every day? Does it pop up in some way? Does it come up in conversation? Or is it pretty far in the rearview mirror? Hmm. Let me think about that for a sec. I'd say probably uh, it comes up at least on a daily basis. Okay. Um, now, having said that, it's a lot of it might have to do with the fact that you know we we were originally from Ottawa, right? So we're yeah. something of a known entity. So even in my workday, you know, something might come up, right? Uh, you know, I gave you an example earlier on where somebody may 
buddy may call me and say, hey, guess what I'm listening to on, uh, you know, whatever radio station. Or, you know, I go to a meeting and someone, uh, you know, inevitably says, oh, by the way, uh, you know, I should mention the fact that uh, our video producer used to play in this band, right? Mm. And of course, most of the time people don't remember it sure. all, right? but the younger audience. But, but yeah. so it, it, it probably does come up every so often, but, um, okay. but I, don't, I don't mind, right? It's, 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 uh, I yeah. mean, it's definitely a past life, but it's not something – Put it this way: It's not something that, when it comes up, it I I, I don't get any sense of discomfort or pain or longing okay. or there's there's no melancholy. It's it's always oh, good. a good. sense of a sense of you know what? Yeah, I do remember. And and and, and to be quite honestly, it hasn't hurt my business at all. Yeah, um, it's very you know, yeah, it's it's something that you know I I retired from, and then you know. Every so often, maybe I I might be you know doing business with somebody that that, that says to me, yeah. by the way, you know, I was a big fan of your band, right? Yeah, and that, probably that can't be a bad doors. thing as long as I do no. my job well. It's not a bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. That's good to hear. Well, as much as I wish that eight seconds was still an active thing, I am so happy to hear that you have such contentment in your life. Recently, I was looking on YouTube at some old videos and interview anything I could find and I found this one um, somebody and I don't remember what it what they were even called now but they they compile um, like an hour's worth of very obscure 80s music and you can like play it on a loop and you guys were in there uh, tell Diane I believe was in there oh, and cool. someone yeah and it was there's like I don't, I don't even look yet there's a bunch of these this guy makes a bunch of these videos and puts them out there I've been listening to a lot of them lately because I I love 80s music. And someone made a, had a quote, someone made a comment on the video that I thought was so apt and said what I think really beautifully. And it says, so many great bands with music that sits alone in a dark, dusty place under the stairs. And I thought, as sad as that may sound, that's how it feels. It's like this little bright light that deserves more attention and more focus that unfortunately just, it remains under the stairs is the you know a beautiful thing you have to find you have to look for it's not going to find you you know well that's very nice actually i like that yeah <laughs> yeah i thought that was a good way to sum up not just you but any music that you love that just doesn't get the attention you feel it deserves you know yeah true I'm so grateful that you took the time andy i don't know if you can tell i've been fascinated with you for almost 30 years I started this podcast a few months ago, and it was largely to find you. And, oh, um, very cool. Yeah, and I've been able to interview a lot of my heroes, but you were at or near the top of this list and have been for a long time. And well, so thanks, man. I, I just, it. you bet. I have been curious where you went. I wanted to tell you how much you meant to me. I want to, to be able to tell you that I love what you did, and I'm so happy that you're a happy man now. And um, what, if you ever, I want you to know that what you did matters. Maybe you feel that way a lot because you're Canadian, so you're around people who know who you are. <laughs> I don't know anybody else around here in Denver that knows who you are, but I do, and I want you to know that you matter to me. So I just want to be I, able you know to what? tell it's, you that. It's greatly appreciated, and and and, and like I said, it's, it's one of those things, uh, listening to that, that, that give me fond memories of, of, of what we did, you know? So I appreciate Good. that. Good. I hope so. All right, there you have it, Andy Del Castillo. Pretty straightforward, I think. I mean, the guy starts a band, writes some songs, put out an album, has some success, can't get the second one really off the ground, transitions and moves on. 
And that's it. Doesn't seem to be too, you know, haunted or even really nostalgic one way or the other about those days. I'm sure he looks back at, back at him fondly, but they don't seem to really factor into his life today at all. That was a huge bucket list item for me. I have had a fascination with that guy and that band for so many years. Always wondered whatever happened to them. I sort of can't believe he talked to me. That was major. All right, next week, we're gonna to talk to Gerard McMahon. If you know that name, you will know that he is the man behind one of the most iconic soundtrack songs of the 80s. If you don't know the name, I'm not gonna tell you what it is because I, I think you're gonna be surprised to find out. I thought it would be really interesting to learn about the guy behind this iconic song that if you were there, if you were around at this time, you absolutely know this song. Everybody knows this song. Turns out the guy has led a very interesting and colorful life, especially in music. He's been around like 40 years, worked with a lot of interesting people, and he's still making it happen today. It's fascinating stuff. All right, huge thanks to Jan Makevich, Jan the man, for producing this and everything else for us. Stay in contact with me. You can tweet me at the Hustle Pod. You can email me at thehustlepod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. That would be great. If you like our page and you want to stay in contact with us that way, we post a lot of things on there. You can send me a message through there if you want to. All right, take care.